Genesis 33. Well, you know the story. Jacob is going back home again. He's heard the news, though, in chapter 32, news that was very disconcerting to him, and that is Esau was coming with 400 men. Esau, his older twin brother. Esau, whose name means Harry. Because Harry could be scary, believe you me. Harry was the tougher, more macho, older twin brother who had reason to be very, very angry. For Jacob, his younger twin brother, had manipulated, maneuvered, connived, and cheated his way into gaining the birthright and the blessing. Those that should have belonged to Esau ended up in Jacob's possession. And Esau was ticked off and threatened to murder his younger twin brother. So Jacob hightailed it out of there and went to Pandanaram for how many years? Twenty years. And now, the Lord said, time to go back home again. So he's on his way. We saw in our story last time, last Wednesday, that that night before Esau would show up, Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord all night long and said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And he got blessed. But he was also broken. His hip was dislocated. And he would go into the promised land, back home again, limping. He would be a perpetual limper. A reminder to him that he must lean on God every step of the way. Every single day. Just like he has to lean on that stick, that cane. So now, he's on his way. He lifted up his eyes, verse 1 of chapter 33, and looked, and behold, Esau came, and with him four hundred men. So Jacob divided the children unto Leah, and unto Rachel, and unto the two handmaids. Now he put the handmaids and their children in the front, and then Leah and her children after them, and then Rachel, his favorite, and Joseph in the third wave. He kept Rachel in the back along with Joseph, for you see, Rachel was his favorite wife. He put the handmaidens that he had kids with, Rachel's handmaid and Leah's handmaid, he put them in the front with their offspring, and then Leah, and last Rachel in the safest place because really his heart was with Rachel in a big time way. So now he's got him organized, he's got it all worked out and he continues on. He passed over before them and now he goes out to meet Esau and the 400 men. He bows himself to the ground seven times as he came near to his brother. Esau, verse 4, ran to meet him, embraced him, and fell on his neck. Now, we're not talking karate here. When you come across that phrase, you know, falling on his neck, it doesn't mean hi-ya. It kind of seems that way, you know. It's not a karate chop. It's not some kind of a, you know, martial art display. 
But to fall on the neck when you come across that phrase in the Bible, and you will from time to time, it, it means you hug them, you embrace them. It's, it's a warm, friendly, embraceive kind of greeting, you see. So Jacob is bowing down seven times, wondering, man, is Esau going to annihilate me? Is he going to pounce on me? Is he going to chew me up and spit me out? What's he going to do, this brother Harry of mine? And Esau comes and starts hugging him. <laughs> what, what a scene. And kissing him. And Jacob may have liked that. And fell on his neck and, and, and they wept. I didn't mean that. And he's just amazed that day as his brother is embracing him. Oh, he... <laughs> He lifted up his eyes, Esau did, and he saw the women and the children and said, Who are those with thee? Who are all these kids and, and, and women here? And Jacob said, The children which God hath graciously given thy servant. Oh, Esau, this is my family. These are the kids that God has graciously given to me. Eleven sons and a daughter, you see. So the handmaidens, they came near, verse 6, and they and their children bowed themselves down before Uncle Harry. And Leah also with her children came near and bowed themselves down. And then, wave number three, after them came Joseph, little Joey, and Rachel, his mother. And then they bowed themselves down before Uncle Harry too. Esau, verse 8, said, What meanest thou by all this drove which I met? Remember that? Jacob sent drove after drove or wave after wave of camels and goats and sheep and bulls to, to try and sort of bribe Esau, soften him up. Remember that? It was his plan. He prayed to the Lord, but then he went back to his own scheming. Kind of like my tendency, or perhaps your tendency from time to time. And Esau says, what, what, what did you mean by all these gifts you sent my way? All this stuff that you, you sent out ahead of you that, that came to me. What, what did you mean by all of that? Well, Jacob said in verse 8, These are to find grace in the sight of my Lord. I did this to find grace in your sight. Wait a minute. Here we see an illustration that we touched on last Sunday or two Sundays ago now, I suppose. Maybe it was three. But it's a tendency that people have to this day to say, I'm giving you this to find grace in your sight, Lord. Not to Lord Esau, but to Lord capital L, our Master. Let me tell you something. Our Lord is not Monty Hall. He doesn't do, let's make a deal. Grace is unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. Why is it that I can't get that through my thick skull? Why is it that I think I have to give something to the Lord in order to then receive something from the Lord? Why is it so difficult for us to receive grace graciously 
Why is it that I think, well, I've got to go to this meeting or have those devotions or read that chapter before I can expect to receive from my Lord and Master? It's because we've been so ingrained with the concept. There ain't no free lunch. But you know what? In the things of God, that's the amazing thing. There is a free lunch and breakfast and dinner too. Come to my table, he says to me and you. Come and dine. <laughs> Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye, what? Buy and eat. I'm still going to have you, Denny, preach that message that you preached on the mountaintop. That was classic. If you don't have money, come buy and eat, you see. It's grace. And, and here's a little vignette, a little picture of the tendency of People just like Jacob that day who said to Esau, Hey, I, I did all these things to find grace in your sight. Well, what does Esau say? I have enough, my brother. Keep this stuff for yourself. <laughs> I have enough. Now, if Esau, who is a type of the flesh, says that's not the way it works, how much more our Lord, who is the epitome of grace and goodness, how much more would our Lord say to you and me, that's not the way it works. Don't feel that you have to be attending this or doing that or giving the other before you come to my throne. In fact, in Hebrews it says to us directly, therefore let us come, what? Boldly unto the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you're in need tonight, know this. There's nothing that is keeping you from approaching your father this evening. If you're his son, if you're his daughter, if you're born again, there's nothing that is keeping you from going boldly into his throne right now where you're sitting or when you leave here this evening to say, Father, I'm stuck, or Father, I don't understand, or Father, there's this difficulty, and, and I'm just going to place it in your hand right now. I don't have anything to give to you except this problem. This is the genius of true spirituality. This is the uniqueness of biblical Christianity. Every other religion and philosophy is based upon responsibility. Your responsibility to fast. Your responsibility to chant. Your responsibility to om. Your responsibility to whip your back and crawl on your knees. And therefore you can appease the gods and receive something if you do it hard enough, long enough, well enough. Christianity is not responsibility. It's grace. Unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. And what does that do? It makes us respond in worship. It makes a wacko group of people come out on a threatening night and sit in an amphitheater to say, we want to sing songs to Him and, and, and talk about Him and learn of Him. Not because we got to, it's because we get to. For a lot of years, I thought, I really did, I thought that it was about 
It's my responsibility to pray, my responsibility to tithe, my responsibility to be in church, my responsibility, and it was all about me. And then I began to understand that God blesses, that God gives, that God avails Himself, not on the basis of what I do or don't do, but on the basis of what He did in sending His Son to die on the cross to pay the price for all my sin. And now I come boldly before Him. You mean that I don't have to pray? I don't have to read the Word? I don't have to be at church? And I can still have a relationship? And I can still come boldly before His throne? Basically, yeah. And When that pressure was taken off me, I began to say, wow, I want to study. I want to be in church. <laughs> I want to pray. I can't believe this, that God is so good. And, and it made me not one who was looking to himself, but one who was loving his Lord. I, I just, I'm in love with Jesus Christ, and I know you are too. Because we're so free. We're free from religiosity. We're free from, well, you better do this and then God may do that. He just does it and we just respond. It's not responsibility, it's response. And so morning by morning, like today, we see the sanctuary full of people that come out to morning worship to earn a blessing. No, they come because they are blessed. And they sit there and they say, Lord, you're awesome. You're so good to us. That's the way it's supposed to be. Well, Jacob makes the mistake that a lot of us make. I, I, I gave you these gifts. I did this stuff that I might find grace in your sight, in the sight of my Lord. Esau says, hey, no way, bro. I've got enough stuff. Keep what you have for yourself. Well, Jacob said, nay. He, he, you know, he didn't want to horse around. Nay, I, I, I pray thee, Esau. If now, if now I have found grace in thy sight, then receive this present from my hand. Now that's the key. No, if I have found grace and we have found grace, well then receive this gift. I'm giving you this, Lord, because you have been gracious to me. I'm not giving this to you so that you will be gracious. I'm giving this to you because you have been so good. You are so generous. And Jacob here is capturing it now. This is the right way. At first he says, I gave you these things to find grace. Keep your stuff, Esau says. Now, Jacob says, no, I, I'm giving you this, he says. If, if I have found grace in your sight, then, then receive these things. It's my response to you, you see. Well, he goes on to say, if I have found grace, and he had, then receive this present. For therefore I have seen thy face, as though I had seen the face of God. You were pleased with me. I've seen your face. I thought you were going to be scowling at me, angry with me. I thought I would see murder in your eyes. And hear anger from your lips. But I've looked at your face, and it's like God. It's godly. It's it's. Gracious, he says that day. Take, he says, verse 11, I pray thee, my blessing that is brought to thee, because 
because God hath dealt graciously with me, and, and because Jacob said, I have enough. And Jacob urged Esau, and Esau took it. Esau said, well, okay, Jacob, I'll take it. Esau is being gracious here. He doesn't need the stuff, but Jacob wants to give it, so Esau says, okay, I'll take it. And then Esau, verse 12, says, well, let's take our journey, let's go, and I will go before you. Let's go together now, bro. This glorious reconciliation. Let's move back together, let's travel together. I want to go with you, Harry says to his younger twin brother. Well, Jacob says this in verse 13. Jacob says to Esau, but my Lord knoweth that the children are tender. They're young. I've got 11 kids. And some of them are just little guys. And also the flocks and herds with young are with me. I've got all these lambs, you know, that are with young. Like Ed and Debbie. You know, I've got this whole crew here, you see, and and, and I can't travel quickly because I've got all these, these young ones here, you see. Ed and Debbie's last name is Young. It's a little, little tempt at humor there. But that's, yeah, really. <laughs> really. But that's what he says here. Esau, you know that I've got little kids with me, and also my flocks have young lambs with them. If the men should overdrive them in one day, the flock will die. You know, we can't go as fast as you, Harry. You've got 400 men with you, and they were mounted men, evidently. So he says, let my Lord, I pray thee, Esau, go ahead, pass over before me, and I will lead on softly. I, I will go slowly, carefully, according as the cattle that goeth before me, and the children be able to endure. Until I come to you, Esau, my Lord, unto Seir. Now, you Bible guys know where Seir is. It's Edom. Down there by the Dead Sea, it is east of the Jordan River. Petra is the main city there in the area of Edom. We'll talk more about that in a future study. But here Jacob says, you go ahead and I'll, I'll meet you at your place. I'll, I'll swing by where you're hanging out there, you see. Well, Esau said, well, let me now leave thee with some of the folk that are with me. I'll, I'll leave you some of my men to help you on your journey. They'll help you uh, get the flocks and your entourage. They'll help you get there safely and securely. Well, Jacob said in verse 15, what needeth it? it no need for that. Let me find grace in the sight of my Lord. No need for that, Harry. No need to do that. So Esau returned that day and went back on his way to Seir, or to Edom, to Petra, that area. A couple things to note here. We see here, first of all, a glorious restoration. Esau, man, he really shows some class here. He, first of all, does not hold a grudge against Jacob. He lets it go. He had reason to be angry, but he, he said, hey, that was 20 years ago. Some people just won't let go of grudges. They just won't let go. Esau here, he shows a better way. He let go of the grudge he felt. And then he wouldn't take the, I don't want your gift. I don't want your stuff, your gift. You keep it to yourself. Jacob, he said that day, I've got enough. And then he took the gift when Jacob was saying, but I really want to give this to you. 
Okay, I'll take it then. If that'll make you happy, if that's what you want to do, I'll take it. I'll take it from you. And then he offered, I'll travel back with you as you're making your way back home again. Me and my boys will travel back with you. No, no, I, I, I couldn't ask you to do that. We, we have to go slowly. And then he goes on to say, well, then I'll just leave a couple of my men or some of my boys to assist you in your journey. Esau shows a lot of class here. But here's the interesting thing. Esau, in biblical perspective and theology, is a picture, as we shall see in a later study, is a picture of the flesh He is an uncouth man spiritually, but he's refined and polished in personality. He's culture. He's popular. He would be considered a nice guy in our society. But God points Esau out as being a picture of the flesh, a doomed and damned man. The book of Hebrews says there was no place found for him to repent. He's lost. Now listen, kids, this is what this means. Gang, listen carefully. Because you're going to deal with this, but, but my neighbor or my, my co-worker or my uncle, they're so nice. They're just so generous. They're so kind. They're so giving. They may be. But I used the illustration before and I bring it back to your memory again. They may be a gem. They may be a real diamond. In comparison, the Christian that you're sitting next to, or not your spouse, but on the other side, the Christian you're sitting next to may be a cabbage in comparison. <laughs> that person, that's, it's a heathen but they're so nice and refined and polite, you see, that may be true. They may be a diamond, and the person sitting next to you may be a cabbage, but there's a big difference. A diamond is dead. Polished, esteemed by people, a jewel, yes, but dead. A cabbage, people kick it around and toss it away, but a cabbage is alive. Why do I point this out to you again? Because people that you talk to, people that you share with, get real mixed up about this. They say, well, I see Christians at the Applegate, and, and man, they're rude and crude, and, you know, not, not this group, you know, the Thursday night crowd, that, that, you know, that, that, that group. <laughs> and I know this Christian, and they're really mean, or that Christian, and they're really... I say to them, first of all, you've got to realize something. If you think they're bad now, I say, you wouldn't believe how bad they would be if they didn't have Christ in their hearts. It's a matter of comparison. They would be, <laughs> they would be terrible. I mean, it's a comparative deal. But, but secondly, the real issue, as is in our story, the real issue is this. They may be a cabbage head, but they're alive. You're dead. Because sin has not been dealt with in your life. That is the unpardonable sin. All sin is forgiven, but there's one sin that will send you to hell. And that's the blasphemy of the Spirit, Jesus said, which is the rejection of the gift of salvation. In Ephesians 2, Paul says to me and you, And you who were dead 
in trespasses and in sins, hath he quickened or made alive. We were dead, like a diamond perhaps, or like a lump of coal in some cases. Either way, it's dead. But he made us alive. And now we're growing. We're not what we should be, but we're not what we used to be. And we're not what we're going to be when we see Him. The Apostle John tells you and me, we shall be like Him. (laughs) That's going to be a grand day. Now, I want to show you something here to mark for you guys that are kind of students of Scripture. I want to show you how this works out in our story, in our text, very simply. Watch this. What does Jacob say? Jacob says, verse 11, please mark this. Oh, he says to Harry, he says to Esau, I pray thee, take this blessing, because God has dealt graciously graciously with me. I have a lot, is the idea. Please mark that. God has been so good to me. God has dealt graciously with me. Look at verse 5 of the same chapter, chapter 33. Esau says, Now whose are these kids? And Jacob says, The children which God has, what? Graciously given thy servant. He looks at his family and he says, God has graciously given me these kids. He looks at the herds and he says, Esau, God has graciously given me this. That's why I have so much. What does Esau say? Now, mark those two verses that we just read, and then watch what Esau said. Verse 9, Esau said, I have what? Enough, brother. Did you note that, please? I have enough. I have enough. I have enough. I have enough. I. Me. I'm a self-made man, Jacob, while you were gone away. Look, I have enough. Now, he is a kind guy here in the flesh, but does he give any credit to God? Does he acknowledge in any way, God has been gracious to me. Jacob, although he's not cool like Esau, as we shall see, Jacob's not polished like Esau outwardly. But Jacob has a heart for God, and he realizes when he looks at his kids, when he looks at what he has, his immediate response is, God has been good to me. Esau says, look what I've done, buddy. I have enough. I'm a self-made guy, you see. I see Dan sitting over here. And, you know, a few months ago they had in the paper in the Medford Mail Tribune, they they had in the paper all the winning realtors for something or other. And uh, Dan was a recipient of, a, of an award along with his partner, Bob. And I was looking at, and, and, and they had these guys, you know, the winners of these big awards and honors. And each of them, the one, talked about, you know, why they were able to be so successful in the past year selling so much real estate. And, and they would say things like, well, I offer the best service and, and we are the hardest workers and, and we have really applied ourselves and so forth and so on. And, and then I, I came to 
to, to Dan and Bob's little column there for their award, and they just said, God has blessed us this year. <laughs> and I, I read that and I go, that is perfect. That's, that's the heart of Jacob in the best sense. The heart of Esau is, well, you know, I applied myself and I worked hard and, and I'm really energetic and I'm the right guy and you can count on me, see. And, and, and these guys over here just said, you know what? God's blessed us. He's good. May, may the Lord increase your tribe, Dan. If you want a house, see Dan right over here. Uh, he's, he's a worthy guy. His heart is in the right place. So... That's the difference between Esau, Esau polished, gracious to Jacob, yes, kind, yes, but a basic flaw that will send him to hell. He doesn't have any heart for God. Jacob, he's got lots of problems, but Jacob, beneath it all, says, God has been gracious to me. God has been good to me. And so we see in this a real key understanding. Why am I harping on this or camping on this point? Because people that you're going to talk to get real mixed up about this. They can't figure out, well, these guys are really nice people. Or those are nice folks over there. And, and they're Esau's, you see. We've got to turn them to the text and say, yeah, that may be, but they're dead. They don't give God the glory. They don't understand that it's God who's blessed them. They don't say hallelujah. They say hallelujah me, hallelujah me. Come into my presence and I'll take care of you, you see. That's their song. Hallelujah me. Hallelujah means praise the Lord. Praise Yah, Yahweh. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. But the world and Esau say, Hallelujah, praise, praise, praise me. I'm your man. Numero uno. It's an Esau mentality. Spiritual death, you see. <laughs> I'm going to say it again. Because I really want you to know and remember all the days of your life, God is looking for men and women to bless who truly know that they don't deserve it. God is looking for men and women to bless who truly, deeply, deeply know I don't deserve it. The only reason that I'm blessed is because God is good and kind and gracious and He blows my mind. God will bless a man, a woman, a family, a church congregation who always understands that it's grace, grace, amazing grace. Unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. And the result will be, to God be the glory, great things He hath done. Once a church, a ministry, a person, a family starts to say, well, it's because of we're so pure, we're so holy, and we're so radical and diligent and this and that and the other, you see, then you are taking the credit subtly, but taking the credit nonetheless. And God really can't bless as He would like to that kind of a mentality, that person, that church, because God says, I will not share my glory with any man. 
Well, that's pretty selfish of God. Some may say, what kind of a God would be that way? I'm not going to share my big glory hog. Why does God say, I'm not going to share my glory with any man? Because God knows that any man that you look to, any man that you lift up, any man, woman, group, party, company, whatever, anything that you rely on that is not God will disappoint you. Because every man, every woman, every political party, every economic system, everything other than God will ultimately break your heart. Because everything else but God is flawed. Only God is not flawed. And that's why we are to be constantly awed by a God who is not flawed. You can quote me on that. God's not a meanie. He's not a glory hog. He says, I know this, kids. If you look to that group or those guys or that person, they're flawed because everything in the world has been tainted and polluted and flawed by sin, including the person sitting next to you and the person sitting in front of you, unless you're sitting by my wife. But other than that, every other... Seriously, every person, the person who's on this platform, the person who's in that chair, the person who plays those guitars, whatever it might be, they're all flawed. We're all flawed. Only God is holy. Perfect. When will we get that through our brains and say there's only one? Well then, Pastor John, what are you doing up there in that chair? If you're saying you're flawed, look, here's the deal. We're all in this hospital together. There's one great physician, Jesus Christ, who's the healer. We're all sick. We're all hurting. We're all flawed. We've all been diseased by depravity. We've all been sick in sin. We're all in the same condition. Well, then what are you doing up there? Look, the fact of the matter is, I've just been in the hospital a little bit longer than most of you. So I happen to know where the kitchen is, and I happen to know where the game room might be. I've been in the hospital longer. That's the whole deal. And I've learned my way around a bit. And I can say, there's where the fun is. That's what you want to stay away from. Don't go through that door. It's too north. You don't want to go through there. But, but if you go to the right, you see, there's a pool table. It's real cool. And if you go down four doors, hey, there's this therapy tub you can sit in, and it's really kind of relaxing. That's what we are as pastors, as parents. That's what we are. We're able to say, we've learned our way around We've been in this place and now we understand its grace and we understand who is the flawless one and we're able to say, this is the way, you see. It's grace. It's grace. 
Esau didn't get that. Esau said, it's me. Jacob said, with all of his shortcomings, and we're going to see some, not tonight, I fear, but we're going to see some of these shortcomings again. Nonetheless, he understands this. He has a passion for God. He wanted the blessing and birthright. He went about it wrongly, perhaps. But he hungered and thirsted to have spiritual life. And even in his flawed conditions, he still says it's God who's dealt graciously with me. And that's why Jacob goes down in history as a giant. He understands grace. He's a trophy of grace. He's an example of how grace works. Grace is unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. For by grace are you being saved through faith. And that not of yourself. What not of yourself? That not of yourself, Ephesians 2.8 says, that, that is the faith. The faith that you have in God to receive that grace from God. Even the faith is a gift. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that faith is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any, what? Man should boast. This is what Jacob does understand. And I like that. God has dealt graciously with me. So, there's this glorious restoration. Quickly, I'm almost done, truly. I'm going to only make it to chapter 39 tonight, so don't panic. After a glorious separation... There is, or pardon me, a glorious restoration, if you're taking notes, if you can still see your paper, there is, number two, a needful separation. Now, this is interesting. There's this glorious restoration. Jacob and Esau are restored here, but now there's a separation. Esau says, hey, I'll travel with you. No, go your way. Well, then I'll leave some of my guys behind. No, sorry, that's not not what's going to happen here. You go to Mount Seir, and I'll swing by there and talk to you later. Now, here's the interesting thing. Does he go there? Evidently not. It is possible that he swung by, if you can swing by Edom. It is possible that he did swing by there because in chapter 36, which is a fascinating chapter, there's the genealogy of Esau given in great detail. And it's possible that the reason that that genealogy is in the Scriptures is because Jacob did go down and visit his brother like he said he would. That, we, can, we can give him that possibility. Is that probable? No. But it's possible. So what's the deal here? Why did he say, I'll see you later? This is, this is Jacob's problem. He still it will be wrestling with this tendency to kind of shade the truth and twist things about. But this he has right. Listen. This he's got straight. Listen, he knows what Paul would later on say, be ye not unequally yoked with unbelievers. Whether it be in marriage or relationships or business matters or whatever it might be, the Scripture is real clear. Be careful that you don't yoke into an unequal situation. If you have a horse and an oxen yoked together, man, you're going to frustrate them both and injure them badly. 
If there's a believer and an unbeliever who go into business together, if there's a believer and an unbeliever who marry each other, there's going to be real heartache and heartbreak. Now Jacob knows this. So Jacob says, no, 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 Esau, thanks for being so kind to me. Thank you for your gracious generosity. Thank you, thank you, but go your way. And that's right. And if I can tell or say to any of you who are single today, who may be developing a relationship with somebody of the opposite sex, who's not a believer. They may be a churchgoer, but they're not a real believer. They may be as nice as Esau was, polished and a real gem of a guy, a jewel of a girl. But if they're not passionate for the Lord and committed to the Lord, your heart's going to break, more than likely. You're going to regret Violating what God says to you directly. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. But he's such a gem, so was Esau. But he's such a nice guy, so was Esau. And God says to Esau in the New Testament commentary, he's a damned man. He's a doomed man. He's a lost man. He's a dead man. So if any of you are right now in the midst of developing relationships or partnerships with unbelievers, I would give you a strong word of caution. Jacob knew this. And so he said to Esau that day, you go, don't even leave your men here, you you go. And that is commendable. Well, Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth, verse 17, Oh no, Jacob, don't do it. He went to Sukkoth. The name Sukkoth, as we talked about in Sunday study, means what? Tent town. Tent city. He went to tent town because he was a man that was supposed to be, according to Hebrews 11, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were pilgrims, we are told, who dwelt in tents. But he goes to Sukkoth, which is not in the Promised Land. It's on the other side, the heathen side of the Jordan River. And he built a house. The first patriarch to be linked with a house. It's Jacob here. He's backsliding. Well, he says, you know, I know I'm supposed to go to the Promised Land, but I think I'll just build a house here. There's someone else who did this type of thing, and that was Lot. Ever hear of building lots? You might want to think about that. (laughs) Be careful. He, he, He builds this house in Sukkoth, and he made booths for his cattle. In other words, he built a house and set up a farm and said, Here I am, man. God says, You go to the promised land. He says, well, I'm kind of headed in that direction, but right now i got a house to build and cattle to tend. He goes to Sukkoth, tent town. It should have been a reminder to him, the very name of the place. 
But he does what he shouldn't do. He called the name, or part of me, the name of the place is called Sukkoth, which means tents, booths, lean-tos. And then, verse 18, he came to Shalem, the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. So now he crosses over the Jordan River, and now he's where he should be. How long was he in Sukkoth? It doesn't say. He built a house, had a farm, but we don't know how many years he was there. But finally, he gets going again. He realizes his house wasn't what he thought it would be. Without raising your hand, how many of you have found that out? You build your dream house. Don't raise your hand. You build your house. You work hard for this. You can't wait to get that. You know what amazes me is how often people move. It amazes me. Because what we discover is that we get our house, oh, this is going to really do it, and after a year or two or three, we go, no, no, it's not doing it. So we move again and again and again. Now, that's okay, Dan. That's fine. I think it's a good thing, Dan. Don't you? Yeah, no. It's a good thing if it's for the right reason. But if it's for someone, if it's, if it's because someone is just thinking that they're going to find happiness in the house, they're greatly mistaken. I'm going to share with you something which I know is true. Whether it deals with your house or a relationship or whatever it might be, if you're not happy where you are now, you will not be happy in your next move. Paul the Apostle says, we learn to be content. And if you don't learn to be content where you're at, when you move on, you just take your discontented little self there too. And you'll be just as discontented ultimately in your new spot or in your new marriage or whatever it might be as you were in your previous one. Now that's not to say the Lord won't move you around and have you be a witness in this neighborhood and a testimony to those people and bless you with that place. I'm not arguing against that. But if it's this search for my dream come true, be careful. Because I am to learn to be content where God plants me and places me. And if I'm not content where I'm at, I'm not going to be content where I'm going. It's real simple. So he builds his house, but was he happy? No. So eventually he sells the farm, and he makes his way to Shechem. Shechem. Why Shechem, Jacob? Shechem was a carnal, evil place, as we're going to see. Not tonight, don't panic. But Shechem was a real, terrible place. It was technically in the Promised Land. Yes, it was on the right side of the Jordan River, but you know, you can find places, I can find places <clears throat> that are, you know, well, you know, that guy's a Christian or those guys are believers, but it's Shechem. It's carnal. It's not what it's supposed to be. So he goes to Shechem, pitched his tent before the city there. Didn't go in the city, just pitched his tent toward the city, which reminds us of who again? Lot. He pitched his tent before what city? Sodom. And man, he paid the price. So he bought there a parcel of a field, and he spread his tent. Well, at least he's back in the tent where he's supposed to be. 
And uh, he paid a hundred pieces of uh, silver or money for that piece of property. Watch this, verse 20. And he erected there an altar and called it El Elohi Israel, which means literally the God, the God of Israel. He, he makes this statement, God, God of Israel, but he's not yet where he's supposed to be. And people can erect an altar, they can make a statement, they can build a monument, but they know that they're not where they're supposed to be. He's there with his face, or his tent, pardon me, facing that, that city of Shechem, where Shechemites, sinners, lived. And Dinah, the daughter of Leah, his daughter, went out to see the daughters of the land, the, the, the other girls in the city. Now when Shechem, the man, the son of Hamor, saw her, he took her and raped her and defiled her. Shechem, who lived in Shechem, saw her and said, Man, grabbed her, raped her. And his soul claved to Dinah, the, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the damsel. He spoke kindly to her after he raped her. He said, this is a mystery to me, but he spoke kindly to her. He, he evidently, in his lustful passion, he, he did have feelings for her, evidently. And Shechem went home to his dad after raping Dinah and said, Get me this damsel to wife. Hey, I want to marry her, you see. And Jacob heard, verse 5, that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. He heard this, Jacob did. Now Jacob's sons, the eleven boys, they were kind of like Hoss and Adam and little Joe, were out with the cattle in the field. And Jacob, he, he held his peace until they were come in. Now Hamer, the dad of Shechem, the guy that raped Dinah, went to Jacob to commune with him. Little father-to-father -father talk here. And the sons of Jacob, Hoss, Adam, little Joe, they came out of the field, and the men were grieved. These guys were ticked off. They were very angry because he had wrought folly in Israel in lying with Jacob's daughter, which thing ought not to be done. The brothers rode up and said, Hey, what's going on? Someone's been in the kitchen with Dinah. <laughs> D5 fiddly I.O. They were angry, understandably. They were upset, very definitely. What's going on here? Our sister Dinah has been defiled terribly. Well, Hamer, the father of Shechem, the guy that did the dastardly deed, Commune with him say, hey, the soul of my son Shechem, he longs for your, for your daughter, your sister. I pray you give her him to wife. And make you marriages with us and give your daughters to us and, and take our daughters to you. Let, let's, let's kind of merge our families together. You're here in Shechem with us. Hey, why don't you be joined to us? We'll just kind of marry off our daughters and sons to each other, Jacob. And you shall dwell with us, verse 10, and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade ye therein and get you possessions. Well, it'll be a good enterprise, good for business. And Shechem said unto her father and unto her brethren, Let me find grace in your eyes. And what ye shall say unto me, I will give. Hey, give me a break. Show me grace. Name your price. And I'll pay for Dinah, you see. 
Ask me never so much dowry, gift, I will give according as you shall say to me, but give me the damsel to wife, Shechem said. And the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamer, his father, deceitfully and said, because he had defiled Dinah, their sister, they said to him, well, we can't do this thing, this intermarrying, this letting you have Dinah and we taking your, your women. Because, you see, we can't do this to give our sister to one that is uncircumcised, for that were a reproach to us. But in this will we consent to you. Now, if you will be as we be, that is, every male of yours be circumcised, then we'll give our daughters to you, these boys said, the brothers, dad wasn't there. We'll give our daughters to you, and we'll take your daughters for us, and we will dwell with you and be one people. Verse 17, but if you will not hearken to us and not be circumcised, then we'll take our, our daughter, our sister Dinah, and we will be out, gone. We're out of here. Well, the words pleased Hamer, the father, and Shechem, the rapist's son. And the young man deferred not to do the thing because he had delight in Jacob's daughter. Oh, okay, we'll get circumcised. And he was more honorable than all the house of his father. Shechem was, was making a deal that he meant to keep. That is, okay, we'll be circumcised, me and, and the whole city, and then I'll take Dinah to my wife, and, and then we'll start intermarrying, and we'll just blend together in a blended family. Well, Hamer and Shechem, his son, now had to sell this to the men in the city. Put yourself in their sandals. they got to go back to the boys in the city and say, Hey, guys, listen, I, we cut this deal. I, I want to marry Dinah, and here's the deal. You know, so he's got to sell this. He goes to the city saying, verse 21, These men are peaceable with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and, and trade with them. For the land, therefore, it's large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us for wives. Let us give them our daughters. Only, only here's the hitch, verse 22. Only herein will the men consent to, unto us to dwell with us, to be one people, only if every male among us be circumcised as they're circumcised. But, but here's, here's the good thing, verse 23. Shall not their cattle and their substance and every beast of theirs be ours? In other words, I know this is going to be a little bit painful. But look, here's the deal. We're going to take them over. And all of their cattle and substance and stuff will be ours ultimately. All of those cattle, they'll be our, talk about a bull market. I mean, this is a real, real tricky stock trade. We'll get circumcised and then we'll take the bulls. We'll, we'll, we'll take the, the cattle. We, we'll have it made, man. Prosperity. The Dow will hit 10,000 if we do this deal. It's going to be grand. Well, it came to pass. These guys agreed. Okay, okay, we'll do this. If, if you're, if you're, okay, Shechem. Okay, Hamer. If this is true. If we're going to make a good deal here and make a killing financially, okay. So it came to pass on the third day when they were sore. The reason they're sore is because you can ask your husband. They were sore. And then two of the sons of Jacob. Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers. The guys in the city are all sore. They're recovering from this operation. Simeon and Levi, the brothers of Dinah. 
They took each man his sword, they came to the city boldly, and they slew all the males. See, the guys didn't feel like fighting. The guys were incapacitated. They couldn't defend themselves. They're there in agony, and Simeon and Levi show up, and they unsheath their swords, and they just start chopping away. They slew all the men. They slew Hamor, verse 26, and Shechem with the edge of the sword. And then they took Dinah, their sister, out of Shechem's house, and they went out. And the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and spoiled the city. They took the Rolex watches and the gold chains and the car stereos. They spoiled the city because, because the city Shechem personally had defiled their sister. They took their sheep, their oxen, their asses, and that which was in the city and that which was in the field, and all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, they took captive and spoiled even all that was in the house. Well, now Jacob, now Jacob, the Ben Cartwright in the scene, if you would. It's very similar. Here's Ben, you know, Lauren Green. Ben hears about this. The boys come back to the Ponderosa. And, and Ben, where you been, boys? Well, we've been taking care of business, Pops. What kind of business? And, and Jacob, the dad, hears what his sons had done, Levi and Simeon. And he says to Simeon, to Levi, You have troubled me to make me stink among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And I, being few in number, hey, they shall gather themselves together against me and slay me, and I shall be destroyed, I and, and, and my house, you guys too. And they said, Should he, Dad, deal with our sister as though she was a harlot? Whoa. Doesn't Dad understand? Why is he yelling at us? Jacob would say, because we're going to be wiped out. You've caused us to stink. We are going to be in jeopardy. We are going to be annihilated because of what you've done. When the word gets out into the other cities in this area, they're going to hear, they're going to come in unity and wipe me out and wipe you too, he said to his boys that day. Sad, sad situation. His daughter is raped. His sons are now mass murderers. And he feels as though his own life is about to be lost. He's in real jeopardy. He's screaming at his sons. He's upset with the situation, but hold on. Hold on. It's because he camped at Sukkoth, and he set his face towards a carnal place. Every dad and each mother here needs to think this through carefully. If we allow our Dinahs, or our Daniels, or Davids, or whatever it might be, to interact with the heathen, to check out what the heathen are doing, to go where the heathen go, because we have planted our tent towards those places. Then don't be surprised 
If there's confusion in your kids, if there's problems in your home, don't be surprised. Don't be shocked when you find out that defilement has taken place and terrible things are unfolding and your heart breaks and you go, why? You're causing me to stink. The way you're behaving, the way you're dressing, the way you're acting, the way you're living. Why are you doing this? Well, it could be. It may be. It possibly might be that we have allowed our kids to go places and do things that we know in our hearts are not right. Bad decisions. Unwise choices. Places where the Bible is being undermined, where immorality is flaunted, bad choices. Why do I stop here and say this tonight? Because I'll tell you why. There's kids in the Applegate family that are hurting, and some of them because mom and dad did not take a stand in encouraging them to be different. To go against the flow. But everybody's going to the dance. Everybody's going to the party. Why is she pregnant? She knows better than that. Well, she was at the prom, at the dance, at the party, at whatever it might be. Oh, come on, John, you're stodgy, you're old-fashioned. Get with it. If you could hear what I hear, if you could see what I see, if you could read my mail for a month, you may understand why I feel the way I do. I would encourage you parents to challenge your kids, your teenagers, to take a stand and be different than everybody else who goes there, who does that. I've got my eye on some kids here at the Applegate who are taking a stand. Got my eye on them. I know I know a bunch of kids that say everybody else is going there, all the Christian kids are doing that, but but these kids are saying not me. Cuz I know what happens at those places. I know the attitudes. I know I know what's going on. I know what the undercurrent is. And I don't care if every other Christian family in the Applegate goes to certain places and does certain things. As for me and my house, like many of you, we will serve the Lord. And we will say no. And many of you may be saying, well, John, if you're touching on this or alluding to that, I think that's legalism. And here you started out in this study hours ago talking about grace and now you're ending up with a trip. I'm teaching the Bible. And this story, as sordid as it is, is a huge illustration that God has given to every parent. Well, we're in the promised land, we're at church, we're a part of the ministry, so our 
Dinah goes out there where the boys of Shechem are prowling around. So what? You'll see. And I'm going to throw something out here for you to think about. Maybe your daughter or your son will not be impacted directly because you allow them to go to places and parties and dances and other things that you know. There's, there's, it's not righteous there. It's not a good place to go. But I don't want to say no. I don't, I don't want, you know. And besides, the pastor's kids go. Or the elders' kids go. Or the deacons' kids go. I don't care if some pastor's kids go. Or some elders' kids go. Or some deacons' kids go. I want you, personally, to stand before the Lord and say, should my daughter, my son, be there? Is this a godly place for them to be? Because even... Listen, listen. At 45, I can now tell you something. And if you want to listen, you can end up with a great understanding, I believe. And if you're angry, that's okay. Then you're going to miss this tonight. Even if your son or your daughter navigates the parties, the proms, and all the rest, the Tinseltown stuff and the going off with other opposite-sex members for overnighters and all the rest that kids are doing today. Well, nothing's happening. We're, we're, hey. Even if they navigate it, listen carefully. We are now seeing that the next generation are the ones that really pay the price. Because they grow up and say, well, mom and dad let me go, and mom and dad thought it was cool that I did, and mom and dad said it was okay, and so they tell their kids, no big deal. It is a downward spiral that causes, I'm seeing this. See, I've been around now long enough to see this. The kids that make it through without getting too badly beat up in the Shechem stuff, their kids grow up in an even more liberal environment. And grandparents are now talking with each other, and I get to listen in, and I get to contribute to the conversation, saying, why are our kids allowing their kids to go there and do that? See, I'm fighting for Peter John's kids. I know Peter John's going to be okay. I know his love for God is passionate. I know that Christy's going to be fine as she graduates from high school. I know that Ben and Mary are already showing tremendous signs of deep spirituality and willing to be very different than, than, than other kids, to take a stand, to make a mark. My concern now is for their kids. I'm saying to my kids, if you go that way, it's not just going to have repercussions on you, but you're going to be able to take a stand then with your kids and say, you know what, when I was in high school, I didn't do that, and everybody else was, but you know what, we chose to be a little bit different, and God blessed me, God blessed us. And their kids will then say, really, Mom, really, Dad? Whereas if these kids, my kids, do stuff that I know is Shechemy, their kids are going to do stuff that's even 
much, much worse. What am I saying? Parents, you're not just setting a standard for your kids. You are setting the stage for your grandkids. And if I could encourage you tonight from this simple story, this sordid story, this sickening story, to say, are we allowing our tent to be pitched towards Shechem in, in, in any way? Are we allowing our kids to go out and and then be in a place where they could be either intentionally or perhaps consensually defiled? Hmm. I would say, tonight, ask the Lord to give you wisdom. It is not legalism. It is wisdom. It is not legalism. It's not a got to. You better not do this. And you. It's, it's, it's thinking things biblically. It's thinking things prayerfully. It's thinking things carefully through for what you want your kids and your grandkids to be. And directing them and teaching them and praying for them and encouraging them to dare to be Daniels. Different. And watch what God will do with them and through them. They will never regret it. I didn't go to dances. I was senior class president and student body president and all that kind of stuff. I didn't do that kind of stuff. And yeah, it, 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 some kids make fun of you a bit. And some kids say, well, you know, come on now, you're senior class president. You're in charge of the senior ball. I am so thankful I didn't go. I could have. It wasn't legalism. But my parents were wise enough to counsel me and say, think it through. Where do those things go? Where, where do those parties that stem off of those, where, where do those dances, what, what happens? What type of atmosphere is there? What kind of music is played? What do the boys talk about the next day in the locker room? And I knew that because I was an athlete. And I heard what the guys talked about in the locker room after the senior ball, the junior prom, and all the rest. I heard. I heard. And I wish that girls could hear taped recorded conversations of what guys talk about the day after a dance in the locker room. If girls could hear what guys talk about, I think a lot of girls would have another thought about whether or not they participated in those kinds of things. So the chapter gives us wisdom. Careful. <clears throat> you just say, well, we're just we're in the promised land and we're in the we're in the country and so what? They're hanging out with the Shechemites. Last word, you're saying it better be. God never, ever, ever, our Father never ever, ever, fails to warn us. He never, ever gives warnings to us if they are not necessary. Why would God put such a sordid story 
taking a whole chapter and going into these details in this way. It is a wise man and a wise woman who will say, Lord, if you're telling me this in the story, I better listen.